if we remember, we're in the last week of the life of Jesus, right? Uh, like five months ago or something, we saw, we've spent, like we've been in this last week for a very long time. Uh, but you'll remember, perhaps, um, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. <clears throat> in order to uh, participate in the activities of the week, um, that surround Passover, and then obviously to uh, to fulfill the Passover, right? To to take his uh, proper place as the truer and better, the final Passover for his people. And so um, that's where we are. Um, we saw it last week. <coughs> I've still got the throat thing going on, guys. So again, be patient with me. Um, next week, I'm going to the doctor. If it's not fixed, I'm going to the doctor. Uh, but t- this morning, we're going to push through. So uh, last week, we saw this plot to uh, kill Jesus uh, again float to the surface. That's been a common theme that we've observed a handful of times over the course of Mark's writing. Uh, but if you look back at what we saw in Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 1, the second part, you see that the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. All right, that's what's that's what's going on, and then we see uh, Jesus enjoying this meal um, at the house of Simon the leper, uh, to which insert new character this woman comes and she pours out this flask of ointment, very costly imported ointment, onto the head of Jesus, and Jesus says, um, in spite of the criticism that she receives from the disciples for pouring out this 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 perfume on Jesus, Jesus says here, and, and even perhaps more explicitly, we get this in Matthew's account, that it's in light of the supernatural understanding that she has concerning his, uh, his, his death, right? His crucifixion, that there is this knowledge that she possesses, right? That even the disciples who are closest to her and even the chief priests and the scribes, those who are to be, uh, to be looking out, right? And, and, and waiting for um, and announcing the coming of the Messiah have all missed, right? Um, she has, has, has gotten it, right? The, the Lord has most graciously opened her eyes to this, and she responds with this incredibly beautiful act of worship. That is what we saw last week. Worship, right? What does worship look like? Worship is self-sacrificing. Like, worship is Christ-glorifying, right? It's all about Him. It's not about the temporal, but it's about that which is eternal, and how that which is eternal informs the way that we go about living in the temporal, right? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about, about, about worship, right? And then we closed out this time with Judas's just betrayal, right? And so we have this, this rejection and a continued rejection and this, this sin that's Um, and then we have this act of worship from the Mark 14 woman. And then we have the rebellion of, of Judas, right? Uh, selling Jesus into the hands, right, of those who are desiring uh, that which is evil. And so this morning, <clears throat> this morning we come into... Uh, 
Mark 14, verse 12, and we're going to be going through the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so perhaps this is a familiar passage for uh, many of you. Perhaps uh, this is a, a new look. This is a first look uh, at this particular portion of uh, the final week of the life of Jesus. Nonetheless, man, incredible passage. And so I'm excited and I'm encouraged and I'm looking forward to us being here together this morning. And so um, I want us to uh, I want us to begin with a main idea and three observations that we're going to make over the course of our time together this morning. Okay, so if you take notes, write this down. I don't think that this, that this main idea is even on the slides um, because it was just a work in progress and I just didn't get it there. And so I'll say it multiple times so you can write it down. Here you go. Jesus serves as sovereign king and savior of sinners. This is part one, okay? Jesus serves as sovereign king and savior of sinners through his death, securing for the rescued hope of eternal fellowship with God. Let me say that one more time. Jesus serves as sovereign king and savior of sinners. Through his death, securing for the rescued hope of eternal fellowship with God. Now, that last part's really important, right? Because there is this reality of eternity for us all. All right, like eternity is a reality whether you embrace it or deny it. Like it is before us. And so the question is, what does that time look like? Right? And what we see this morning through this this. This, this presentation of the Passover and Christ's uh, really just rewriting of the script. As far as those who are partaking are concerned, we see that eternal fellowship with God is made possible by way of Christ and what he has come to accomplish. What he is just, just like on the precipice of, right? What we are on the precipice of here in Mark um, ensures for the rescued hope of eternal fellowship with God, as opposed to the realization of eternal isolation and rejection from God. Does that make sense? Right? Eternity is a reality. There, there is either hope for eternal fellowship with God by way of the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice for sinners, or there is the reality of, 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 this, of this eternally, uh, of eternally distant right? um, awareness of uh, never-to-be-enjoyed fellowship with God. Right? Does that make sense? Like these are the these are the two categories. This is what awaits. Eternity is a reality for us all. And so the question then is, is what does that look like? Right? Like where where do we live this out? And so um, that's a little bit of what we're going to be discussing this morning. Three observations. And I, I snuck a fourth one in there for those of you who are um, who are keeping count. Uh, the plan of Christ, the patience of Christ, and a picture of and promise of Christ. Okay, the, the plan of Christ, we're going to see as we begin here, uh, this, this supernatural sovereign knowledge from Christ. We're going to see the patience of Christ as he enjoys this, this Passover meal with his disciples, knowing that there is 
uh, a, a rejection and a scattering that is to take place by his closest friends. Um, and then also, lastly, we'll see this picture of and promise of Christ, the explanation of the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we enjoy together every week. And so, man, here we are. This is wonderful. What a time to be alive. Here we are. Let's go uh, to verse uh, 12 of Mark chapter 14. I'm reading this morning, so you get double me in terms of reading. So uh, let's look there together. This is, uh, this is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, this is an, an incredible question that they asked to Jesus that is not uncommon, but in light of what we know about who Christ is and what he is to accomplish, there's an, a lot of irony here that we're going to address. So keep that question in the back of your mind. Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, <coughs> excuse me, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and gave it to them and said, take this. It's my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Hey, let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word and um, just for your work uh, amongst us, your spirit that resides within us, that opens our heart uh, to understand uh, that which we see uh, here, that which has been preserved by you for your people to the glory of your name. We are grateful um, and we are thankful and we ask you, we petition you, we, 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 rec- we desire of you that you would transform our hearts, that you would transform our affections, that you would transform our understanding um, in light of what we see here this morning. You're good, and we are grateful. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. The plan of Christ. Let's start there. 
Look with me at verse 12. We've seen uh, over recent weeks that Jesus is moving about the city of Jerusalem, right? He is um, engaging. He continues to teach. We've seen the temple closed. Um, and all of it is pointed towards and we're building towards this, uh, this, this fruition, right? This, this monumental moment, this climax. And we are getting ever so close as we find ourselves this morning in verse 12. But it's come time. It's come time to... Uh, to observe the Passover, right? Uh, and so Jesus, in verse 12, we see on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, his disciples say to him. And so this is the question posed from the disciples to Jesus. And the question is this. Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, we said in the beginning, right, that this is not an altogether unfamiliar statement from uh, a group of disciples to the one whom they follow, right? Like this would have been, this would have been, uh, this would have been normal, right? This is, hey, where do we need to go and get ready for dinner, right? It's kind of the question that we're, that we're seeing the disciples ask here. But the answer that Jesus uh, provides to them emphasizes both his sovereignty as well as an incredible irony. And so let's look and let's see. Verse 13. And he said, uh, and he sent two of his disciples and he said to them. Now, consider the detail. We're talking about, we're talking about Christ's sovereign rule over the details of life. Now, why is this important as we go into this passage and we seek to understand it to a greater degree, right? Because there are, uh, first off, in this scene, some very difficult circumstances that are about to arise. We know that the the seizure of Christ is imminent, right? That he is to be taken, that he is to be uh, falsely accused and tried, and that he will be crucified. We know this. We know the story. We know what it looks like. And so why is it important that we understand the sovereignty of Christ that is to be displayed in coming verses? Well, here's a, here's a really big picture, right, for us to understand contextually from Mark 14 before we try to understand it practically for us here in 2018. Does that make sense? And it's this, right, that, that Christ rules sovereignly over the details, that there is this providential foreknowledge that he has. Now, that's important because in previous weeks we talked about uh, in the Olivet Discourse, this question from the disciples presented to Jesus, when is the end going to come? And what does Jesus say? Well, he says, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, only the Father knows. Only the Father knows when this is to when this is to take place. And so when we, when we addressed that particular point in Mark's gospel, we said that this emphasizes the humanity of Christ, which is incredibly important for a redeemed people, right? And then we went back and we said, and up until this point, we've seen the deity of Christ emphasized. Now we find again this morning the deity of Christ emphasized. We find that Christ is intimately aware of the details of this world. Right, the, the world that he entered into, that he condescended and entered into as its creator and as its king, that he is intimately aware, that he's intimately acquainted, that he is not caught off guard, but that he sees this bigger picture that we are unable to see. Does that make sense? 
It's important in the context here because as we approach the cross, the question might arise within, within many of us of, okay, well, like, this seems a bit strange, right? Especially if we're skeptical and we go, okay, well, why is Jesus, like, why is all, like, is he caught off guard? Did he not know? Like, why is he arrested? Like, what's going on here? No, not at all. <laughs> right? Christ is not caught off guard. But he's aware. Why is that important? Well, because it highlights for us, doesn't it, his, his great love for his people, for sinners, and his commitment to the plan of God set in motion before the foundations of the world to rescue a people, to redeem a people by way of his sacrifice, by way of his blood, this new covenant that we're going to see him talk more uh, in detail about in coming verses. Are you guys following along with me here? What we're going to see in just a moment is going to establish for us this this greater realization that Christ is aware in the context of Mark 14. And what we're going to find as we trace this through and we come to a conclusion at the end of our time together is that Christ remains the same. right? That he is aware of the difficulties and the challenges of his people. Right, that he's not caught off guard. While we are often caught off guard, Christ is not. And so let's, hey, where does it say that? Well, let's go to the text. Like, here it is. Jesus says to his disciples, go into the city and meet a man carrying a jar of water. Right? He'll, he will meet you. This is an interesting scene. Because Jesus instructs his disciples to go into a very busy city and to find a, a, an almost, well, let's say this, a most unique individual in that we see a man participating in a work that is typically practiced by, by slave women, <laughs> right? And so go into this very busy city and it's like a, it's kind of like a quasi like where's Waldo type scene here, right? Like find the man with the water jar. Now, it's a very unusual uh, marker here in the city that is bustling and very busy with lots of other people looking for places to observe the Passover meal. But I want you to go and I want you to find this guy with the jar of water. Some commentators say that Jesus knew the guy. And so that they had like kind of planned out like, hey, carry the water jar and we'll meet you. But it seems like a lot of detail to just plan out if it's not like an exercise of God's sovereign knowledge, right? I think so. So let's continue on. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, along with like the thousands of other people that are in the city to observe the Passover. Verse 15, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, he says, prepare uh, for us. Prepare for us. What did, prepare for us what? What are we talking about here? We're talking about the Passover, right? Prepare for us. Prepare for us the Passover. Now, we, we've said how this is interesting and in that it highlights and it builds for us a greater understanding of the sovereignty of Christ. But there's also an incredible bit of irony in here. Look back with me at, at, uh, at verse 12. The disciples ask Jesus, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? In verse 15, we see the disciples, having followed the instruction of Christ, entering into this this house, right, and preparing the Passover. Now, why is this ironic? 
Well, I, I think it's ironic because in just a few minutes, we're going to see Jesus speaking of this new covenant that he introduces by way of this practice that God's people are, are used to historically practicing. And we step into the redemptive narrative for just a moment, and we say this. We say that before, uh, before creation, right outside of time and space, as, as the Father, Son, and Spirit exist in perfect unity, that there is this plan, right? There is this plan to create. And there's this knowledge that creation, you and I, along with everyone who has come before us and everyone who has come out will come after us, will rebel. That we are born rebels, that we are a rebellious people. Not simply by what we do or don't do, but by nature, by who we are. The human experience is one of rebellion. We are rebellious. And there are just a myriad of examples that each one of us could raise our hands and we could say, yeah, a great example of rebellion in my own life, right? Whether it relates to my fellowship with the Lord vertically or whether it relates to my relationships horizontally with other people. Rebellion is a, is a, is a chief characteristic of God's people in light of what we see in Genesis chapter 3, that we are rebels, right? And so there's this plan before the foundations of creation between the Father, Son, and Spirit to create, to sustain, and to enter into in order to rescue by way of, of perfect practice and obedience, living the letter of the law by the Son of God, right? And then his, his self-sacrificing death for us in order that he might take upon himself all of our rebellion and all of our sin that God is aware of before creation, Right? And here we see this question as the disciples are preparing to observe the Passover meal with Jesus, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but it's all about remembering the faithfulness of God. They ask this question, where do we go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? When really, in light of what we're going to see in just a few minutes, like God has been preparing the people to eat the Passover forever, right? Like they're saying, where do we go and prepare the Passover? And Jesus is, I just imagine, right? Like, you don't even know, right? But like I have been preparing the Passover before the foundations of the world. Like you've been enjoying this, this meal that is intended to like remind you of my, of my covenant love and my faithfulness, my commitment to the rescue and redemption of a people, the salvation of God's covenant people. But we're about to take a major step Right, And I'm going to show you how all of this is about me. You think you're preparing the Passover? Like I've been preparing the Passover. Like I am the Passover. Right? It's, it's all about me. It's all pointed towards me. And it's always been that way. We continue on. It says in verse 16, right, they enter in and they find it just as he had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. There they prepared the Passover. We get this picture of the plan of Christ, right, both, both temporally and eternally. That which is being made manifest that the people have been looking forward to, right, for, for thousands of years leading up into this point. We, we see it displayed and we see it being laid out through this greater understanding and realization of Christ's sovereignty. 
right? Outside of time and space, but also intimately here. Man, is it not good news for God's people to, to understand and to realize and to fall back on this truth that God is sovereignly ruling over, this is, this is time and space, right? This is me illustrating time and space, for those of you who are a bit confused about why I'm doing that. Time and space, right? He's, he's ruling over it. But also, don't we see that, that God is intimately acquainted with and aware of the details of the day-to-day by way of what we observe in the first portion of this passage? Like, he knows where people are, and he knows what they're doing, and he knows what they're carrying. And this isn't a new concept. Right? If, you, if you go back to, and we're going to, we're going to go back to the Exodus. But if you go back to the Exodus and you see God laying out this plan from the midst of this bush to his servant Moses to go back into Egypt and to lead his people out, he says to Moses, I have heard and I've seen the suffering of my people. He, he knows. He knows. We see through the first portion of this passage that Christ, that Christ is sovereign over the details. That's challenging, I think, for us to get. Because if that's true, then we have to find out what to do with like suffering and difficulty, don't we? Like, we have to figure out what to do with trial and hardship. We have to figure out what to do with circumstances that don't, at times, from our perspective, appear to be ideal, right? We have to figure out what to do with that. And so what do we do with that? Well, we approach it in light of this understanding and this realization built here, but not only here, that there is a bigger picture that's playing itself out. Remember this? There's this that's playing itself out. And a few of us this past weekend, uh, actually more than a few, it was about 20 of us that went through uh, a, um, a marriage conference of sorts, a simulcast with Paul David Tripp. Like, I know him. With Paul David Tripp. He was here. It was awesome. But we went through this, and one of the things that he talked about uh, was, and this was just incredibly, like, informative and wonderful, uh, was that God has this, this desire to... Uh, to transform and to sanctify his people as we are made to look less like Kirk and made more made to look more like Jesus, right? And that as I look less like Kirk and more like Jesus, that there's a lot of avenues that God accomplishes this by, right? And some of those things are difficulty and some of these things are, 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 are challenges. And so when we experience trial and difficulty and, and challenges in our life and we don't go, okay, this is a, a direct result of sin that has led to this specific circumstance, which oftentimes can be true, but this is just, hey, I'm just trying to like follow Christ and be obedient to him, and this is where I found myself, and it proves to be difficult, then we've got to say, what is he doing? Because he knows, and he's powerful, he knows water jar people like hanging out in Jerusalem, right? Like, so what do we do with this? Well, we, we come back and we go, man, this is who God is. This is who he, he establishes himself as in his word. And so let me move forward confidently with this, this understanding and this greater realization that there is something bigger that's taking place here. Here, this is a detail in this passage, but there's something bigger happening here, okay? And that's what we need to work towards now, or we're never going to get done. Let's go to verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining 
at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, we're going we're gonna to continue to build upon this understanding of the plan of Christ. We have to, in light of what we see here, the supernatural knowledge, not only of the water jar, but also of the man who is to betray Christ, which really we see just a bunch of betrayal going on. We see abandonment. We see the friends of Christ leaving him as he hangs upon the cross. Uh, we see denial. I mean, it's just going to be a really ugly scene, uh, but it continues to inform our understanding of the plan of Christ. But we also see the patience of Christ. We see the love of Christ. We see the commitment of Christ to the plan of God to rescue his people. As we observe, again, the supernatural knowledge of Christ in the scene, right? Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is the time, right? This is the time that Jesus brings this up. And he brings it up here as he is enjoying with his followers in this most intimate scene, the betrayal of Judas. It's highlighted, it's emphasized by way of what we see in the middle portion of this passage. Because eating is an act of intimacy. Table fellowship is a powerful thing, right? Like, we have some good friends who, uh, Corey and I have some good friends. You know them, many of you, Andrew and Amber Owensby. And one of the things that we like to do over the course of of our rhythms of life is to enjoy table fellowship together. Eat a meal, drink coffee, have something sweet, right? Talk, catch up. Andrew and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I, and I said, I'm much like this, that I can sit at the table and enjoy table fellowship like all night. I don't need to move or transition to the living room, which drives a lot of people crazy because the table is not always the most uncomfortable. This is a little bit more comfortable of a scene. They're likely reclining on some pillows and the table's, table's there, right? And so the table fellowship looks a little different, but... We would all agree that table fellowship creates bond and intimacy, doesn't it? Christ, by way of his death, is creating bond and intimacy between God and his rebellious creation. Right? And here in this scene, Jesus acknowledges and, and brings to the forefront this. This knowing, right, of the rebellion of one, right? The betrayal that we talked about, a woeful betrayal, if we consider back to what we saw last week. He he chooses this intimate scene to bring to light the betrayal of the one. Naturally, verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it, is it me, right? Is it me? Like, I think I have that. You know, like, I think that's me. I picture like a WebMD thing type going on here. <laughs> I have this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much to read into it. But I, I think there's something here that informs for us the knowledge that we have of the hardness of our own hearts. Right, like our our understanding, just by way of horizontal relationship, 
right? Like, let's just like this is true whether someone, if we're talking about vertical relationship with God or we're just talking about horizontal relationship with one another, right? That there is this tendency that we have to be to be fickle, right, and to be free spirited, right, and to run, right. To, to, to back away and to and to betray and it, and it looks as though right as we're touching base with what the disciples are experiencing in this scene it looks as though they get this right like is it is it me like I know that I can do this that's why we sing songs you know like uh, like like bind bind our hearts right like a like a fetter to you why well because the tendency of our hearts is to is to run the tendency of our hearts is to is to flee. Right? And, and so Jesus is he's drawing this out. And every one of them are being confronted with, with the rebellion within. As are we as we sit here and we reread this story this morning. But Jesus gets most specific, right? He said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Verse 21, for the son of man goes as it is written of him. Now, there's this interesting, there's this interesting statement that follows. Woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And I think that there's a tendency that we have to read into the second portion of, of 21 and to want to have all the answers to all the questions that float to the surface in light of this statement. But the emphasis, without a doubt, is in the first part of, chapter, of verse 21, that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Now, what's Jesus referencing here? What's he, what's he talking about here? Well, he, he's talking about that which has been spoken forth from the mouth of God and recorded by the prophets throughout history concerning the one that is to come entering into human creation and living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die in light of our sin. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is, is referencing here. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Again, we're not. Jesus is not caught off guard. He is. He is aware. He is. He is intimately aware of that which is to take place. And I, venturing back to Moses and the bush scene, right? And I remember reading at one point over the years a commentator on that particular portion of scripture where he says he's talking about the knowledge and the seeing that God possesses that he speaks about to Moses in that scene where he says, I've seen the affliction of my people. Like I know, I hear their cries. And there is in that scene an intimacy that God is highlighting that speaks outside of, well, like I was in the kitchen and the TV was on. And so I heard, you know, Lyola's last second shot to knock the balls out of the tournament, but I didn't see it, right? Did you guys catch that? I interjected that last part there because I'm still processing and dealing through it. <laughs> but it's this I know and I'm intimately acquainted with. Right? That there's not only this knowledge of that which is to take place, but we're in essence uh, growing in a deeper realization of the crucifixion of Christ before the foundations of the world. Right? That there is an awareness of that which is to take place. 
And we see here that when we, in verse 21, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That it's not just words on a page, but there is a supernatural knowledge that comes along, right? And merges in with this idea that Christ possesses, right? Passages that speak towards the suffering that he is to experience at the hands of, as we see from Peter in Acts chapter 2, sinful men because of God's great love and his desire to rescue us from the wrath that we deserve. The the suffering servant, aware and committed to the fulfillment of God's word. Like, of course, verse 21 had better be true. Otherwise, like if there's not this like this perfect desire for fulfillment and obedience, then, man, we are still in a lot of trouble. But our hearts can be encouraged because we're not. We're not still in trouble, right? Because we have a hope and a a rescuer and a savior in Christ who fulfills that which has been written, who is days away, hours away. From beginning the incredible injustice that we will see unfold. Committed to the plan of God to rescue sinners. The patience of Christ as he, as he sits in this scene and he loves his disciples well. And he speaks the hope of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he displays what this looks like through the institution of the Lord's Supper. Incredible patience from Christ. Love. Like this is a, a, a heartfelt, this is a love-inspired patience, isn't it? When we talk about the patience of Christ, we ought not understand it as though, man, like, Christ is just, he's super patient with me, like, as I continue to, like, fail and struggle, right? Uh, Are these guys ever going to get it, right? That's not what we see here. This isn't the image of, of, of the Christ, This is the image of Jesus that we've seen developed over the last year and some months through the Gospel of Mark. But it's a a loving, compelled patience, right? It's a love-compelled patience. And then he leads us into the institution of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've heard it called the Last Supper before, but there's a sense in which we actually see this as the First Supper, (laughs) Right? Because this is new. We're seeing something, something, something new that is, being, that is being rolled out. And God's intention for the Passover from the beginning. Let's look at verse 22 together. And as they were eating, he took the bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, the, the meal up until this point would have been uh, most familiar to those who were participating. Because there was, there was, a, there was a, a series and a sequence of events. There were, there were prayers, and there were cooperative readings, and there were responsive readings that are taking place as the, the disciples, God's people, 
right? God's covenant people participate in this meal together. Now, a few things that we need to know before we get to the transition point is that this has been a meal that God's people had enjoyed going all the way back to Egypt. This meal is intended to be passed down through the ages as a means by which God's people remember his covenant love and faithfulness. His his commitment to their salvation, to their rescue, being taken out of bondage and oppression in Egypt and led into a land that God sets aside for his people that is rich. He he leads them and he he, he guides them. He rescues them as the final plague passes over Egypt. Egypt. Right, there are, there are, are, are lentils right, that line doors and they, they paint the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts so that like, the angel of death might pass over, right? That, they would, that he would pass over them by way of the blood of the lamb. Right, that they would be sustained, that they would be kept, and that they would be delivered. And God says to his people, this is something that I want you to participate in regularly, that you might remember who I am. How ironic that they are now enjoying this meal that is to take on drastically new meaning with the one who displays perfectly who God is. God in flesh, like incarnate, the incarnation, it comes up every week. The Passover is intended to remind God's people, to remind God's people of the covenant-keeping love of God, his commitment to their rescue, and that which had been left behind. Right? The, the meal that they observed was intended to take them through this process. They take of, of bitter herbs, right, so that they might remember their oppression. Right, literally, if, you, if you've ever taken a Passover meal before, you've ever done a Passover meal before? A few of us. Right, you, if you take of the bitter herbs, right, it literally will like bring like tears to your eyes. Like it makes your eyes like water, right? And so there's this, there's this taking and there's this response that leads the people to remember their oppression. And in turn, the goodness of the salvation of God, his rescue of them. From that which they had had existed under. There, there's, a, there's a sequence of and a series of events that take place as, 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 this, as this group participates in the Passover meal together. And everything is fairly on script until we get to this point in which Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And he says, take hey, this is my body. This is new. Right? Like this is new to them. This is new stuff. And it speaks towards, and it's intended to point us towards that which he will take upon himself to rescue sinners. Right? That the, the bread of, of life who comes into the world in the city of Bread now blesses the bread and takes the bread and breaks it and gives it to his disciples and he says, "This is this is it. This is what it's all about. Everything that we've been enjoying up until this point is intended to point you towards the reality of of this situation, right? Of what's going on right here and right now. The Passover meal it, it led us to a point." 
Right? The old covenant brought us to a, to a certain point. But we are reminded in our inability of our need for a better, aren't we? Like when you start talking like old covenant and like remembering God's faithfulness, we are in that reminded of our unfaithfulness. We, we say week after week after week, the law, the old covenant cannot save us. Right? It, can't, it can't rescue us. Why? Not because the law is broken, but because we are. Because we are broken. And, and while God is the great covenant keeper, that which we are reminded of as the Passover meal is observed, we are great covenant breakers. Does this make sense? God is the great covenant keeper. We are the great covenant breakers. Therefore, if our fellowship with God is dependent on our obedience because of the fact that we are, remember over here, great covenant breakers, we are in trouble. Right? Like like we are in, in trouble. Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, this is the intent of the law. Right? To, to take us by the hand and to walk us to our redeemer. To show us our need for grace. The law reminds us of our need for grace. In this scene, Jesus is proclaiming that all that this is intended to point towards is here and it is before you. And therefore, we are initiating a new. Right? It's, it's no longer observance of this, this Passover meal, but it's now this observance of this Lord's Supper, which will remind you and point you towards me, my sacrifice, right? that which I have done and that which I am doing. Now, if Jesus is not God, then this is a major problem, right? Typically when people pass away, right, we get together and we have, we have a meal together and we tell stories, right? We remember them, right? You guys familiar with this? My only one does this. Do you guys maybe have done this before? You tell stories, right? Catch up. Jesus here is going to tell his people, man, you guys are going to remember this forever. Like you're going to remember me forever. It's incredible. You're going to take of the, of the broken bread And you're going to remember my sacrifice for your sins to redeem you, to rescue you, to save you, to sustain you, to provide you with hope and and encouragement, to transform you, to use you to the glory of my name. He, He does the same thing with the cup. He, he takes the cup, and when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Again, there's this, there's this unity, there's this community that's taking place. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I love, I came across a quote this week I want to share with you guys. It's actually not a quote, it's an idea. But it speaks about that which is taking place as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Take my body, take my blood. What does all this do and what is all this about? One commentator said this. He says, Jesus is not talking about transubstantiation here which Duncan and I chatted about this morning, ironically enough, right? 
that his that this bread and this and this wine is actually taking on the 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 ele- his physical elements like he's not talking about that which would be a roman catholic doctrine uh, but but jesus's followers would have grasped the figurative uh, parabolic language instead jesus is using this scene to refer to his life we're going to begin to, to come in for a landing in, in just a moment. But all of this is about, is about a picture of and the promise of Christ. We're in the picture of Forson right now. The, the eternal son and the bread of life entered into his creation by way of the incarnation in Bethlehem. We're reminded of this as we take of the, of the bread. He took human form in order to live a sinless life in his body. He bore our sins on the cross while in this human body. He triumphed the grave by bringing this body back to life. And now in this body, Christ lives at the right hand of the Father, having been glorified, interceding, in his body for his people who remain here, having uh, benefited eternally from his work. And then he says this, the bread shows us that as God's redeemed, we now participate first in the life of Christ and second in each other's lives. And so get this, as we begin to, as we begin to close this thing right down, I want us to consider the the two things that are taking place as we take of the bread and the cup. He's going to highlight these here for us. First, participation in the life of Christ. Bless you, Eli. Bless you. The bread that we break is not a a participation in... uh, No, he says this. The bread that we break uh, is not a participation in the body of Christ. By taking the bread, we are announcing to the world that we have received and are participating in the life of Christ. Does this make sense? Right? As we take of the bread, as we approach the table in just a few minutes, we remember what Christ, what Christ has done for us. Right? We remember his, his sacrificial death in our place on the cross so that we might, as we look to this moment in the resurrection with faith, receive his righteousness and therefore be adopted into the family of God. As we take of the bread, we remember that we are now identifying ourselves and connected with the body of Christ, right? That there is this beautiful thing that takes place at the table in which we as God's people now indwell with God's spirit, remember that which he has done for us in Christ and we enjoy in this moment and in this season together as his people a divine fellowship. Do you guys get that? Why? Well, because we are, we are God's people and now we are connected in his body and we are announcing it to the world that we have received and are participating now in the life of Christ, that we have died to ourselves and we are now connected by way of the spirit in this fellowship. We are identifying with him and we are following him. And so there's this participation in the life of Christ. Now the other aspect is the participation uh, within the fellowship of the saints. Right? That we are now intimately acquainted with one another and that we are enjoying this most unique 
fellowship. There are instances and, 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 and scenes and, 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 and verses right, in the Gospels that remind us of the, of, the, of, the, of the family that God brings us into now by way of the sacrifice of the Son, right? And it's a family that, that supersedes. Here it is again, right? There's a level in which the family here, right, your family in Christ, right, the universal church, the Catholic church, and the, and, and the local church, that we are closer than earthly family, right? Why? Well, because, because we're, we're connected with Christ, right? And so as we approach the table together, I mean, there's almost this... Uh, I don't know. Here's the thing. I, I think that there. Sometimes we approach the table and we do so like, like super, like somberly. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, kind of like, okay. Like, let I me mean, walk really carefully up, you know, and like take just a, you know, okay, here we go. Like, really gentle, like. And there's a sense in which, as God's people participate in the taking of the Lord's Supper together, that we, I mean, it's a joyous occasion. We, we remember, right? We remember our sin, but we remember the love of Christ, right? Like, we come with repentant hearts, but the second aspect is this, that we come with joyful hearts, right? There's a sense in which, as we come up every, every week, man, we should just, yes, like, here we go, like, here it is, the, the body, Right? The blood, here it is, right? And as we go back and we see God's people taking of this fellowship together, that we're just like like high-fiving. I sometimes want to high-five when we do it, right? Why? Well, because there's this, there's this intimacy that we enjoy as God's people as we participate in this meal together, right? And, and it points us towards that which Christ has done and that which he is doing, that he's bringing us together, that he's creating this, this family of his people, who look to him and live for him and identify with him, we die to the desires of our flesh, right? And we, and we look to and we strive for holiness. Why? Well, because our king has loved us and he sacrificed himself for us, right? And he's defeated death for us. So we see that there's this picture of Christ and then we close with this promise of Christ. What does he say? How does he close it out? Verse 25. He says, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you guys this, right? I'm giving it to the church. I want you guys to practice this. I want you to remember this new covenant, the fulfillment the old, right? And like that which has come, which is new. The first supper. I want you guys to practice this. But here's what I'm going to do. Like, like I'm, I'm going to wait, right? Like I'm going to wait. Because I've got some things that I'm going to be doing over, over the next couple of hours that are going to be super confusing to many of you. And it's going to scatter you, Right? But I want you to remember this, and I want you to continue to take of it. And then I want you to know that there's a day set, and I don't know when it is, because we already talked about that, right? Like, I don't know when, but there's a day set that we are going to enjoy this together again, right? And so as we come to the table, we remember what God has done, like we remember what God is doing, and we remember what he will do, 
right? There's a, we come and there's, there's, again, if we have any problem getting hung up in the temporal, as we approach the table every week, like we are taken by the scruff of the collar and we're pulled out of it, aren't we? Because we're called to remember. We're called to remember that which he, uh, that which he is, is doing, that which he is doing and that which he will do. And so here, here's a few questions that I want us to consider as we close out our time. This is it. Closing it out right here. Are we looking, are we looking to Christ as the sovereign king? Confident that he exercises power over every sin, right? And over every moment. Like, are we looking to him that way? Are we, are we looking to him that way? Are we, are we gazing upon him that way? If we're honest with ourselves, then the answer is no, isn't it? Like we're not. Like we don't do a great job at doing that. And we're reminded as we consider this question and our response that we have a really long way to go, right? That I have a long way to go, that you guys have a long way to go, and that we can't do um, it by ourselves. That we need grace, and we need strength, we need Christ. And so as we approach the table today, let us remember the sacrifice of our sovereign king. Let's remember his supernatural knowledge. Let's remember his providential power. Let's remember that which he has done, that which he is doing, and that which he will do. Let's enjoy this fellowship, this divine fellowship with God and with God's people. Looking forward with eager anticipation in light of this new covenant... Right, the, the fulfilling of Christ, of that which the blood of bulls and lambs could not, the author of Hebrews says, that, that compels us and encourages within us a pursuit of holiness and a desire for a greater knowledge of who God is as we enjoy adoption as sons and daughters. 